0: Hello, and welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Dan Fishback over there.
1: And that's Mark Kaufman over there. And we're here in Los Angeles to bring you today's theater luminary. Mark, how are you today?
0: I'm doing generally all right. How are you, Daniel? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm actually excited for
1: today's guest. Just finished reading some of her
0: work. This time, uh, as opposed to someone who's essentially an actor, we have someone who's essentially a writer. That's right. She does act, but writing has been uh, the major part of her career for the past probably 15 years or so.
1: Absolutely, and an incredibly potent voice she is, particularly for the city of Detroit and for theater, I think, at large right now. So, our guest today is playwright and actress Dominique Moriso, a native of Detroit, Michigan. She graduated from the University of Michigan with a BFA in acting, and began her writing career there as well. Since then, her plays have notably premiered at the Williamstown Theater Festival, the Atlantic Theater Company, and Lincoln Center Theater in New York. She may be best known for The Detroit Project, a trilogy of plays depicting the socio-political status of the city across seven decades. She also wrote the libretto for the current Broadway musical Ain't Too Proud, for which she was nominated for a Tony Award. She has received a number of playwriting awards, including an Obi, two NAACP Image Awards, and last year, a MacArthur Grant. We're very glad to have with us Dominique Moriso. Welcome. Hi, everyone.
0: Hooray, Welcome. there she is.
1: There she is. We should probably start where many, many theater artists start, with with acting. So can you tell me, did this inspiration hit first before the notion of writing for you?
2: Sort of. I mean, I went to school for acting. I didn't know how to make a career out of writing for the theater. I was always a writer, but not necessarily a playwright.
1: And I've read that you started writing plays because you weren't getting cast in certain things. You started writing plays for yourself?
2: That's right. You know, when I was growing up, I used to love to write. I wrote poetry, I wrote short stories, and I knew that I always wanted to act and to write. But when I was in college and I was seeing the disparity of you know how students of color well really it was just myself two other black women in my program at the time in my grade or my year and it was just us and then predominantly white students and the work we were studying and what was mainly being produced on the stages at our school was by predominantly by white men Mm -hmm. and so i just i didn't see myself you know so i wrote this play in many ways my first play i should say in response to my lack of being cast and overall being visible in my department.
0: Well, we'd love to focus on the uh, trilogy of the Detroit Project, three plays we both like very, very much. And actually, before we start talking about them, for our listeners who may not have had the opportunity to see productions or have read the plays, would you give us just a capsule uh, brief on each of those three plays?
2: Sure, I'll do my best. We'll grab better Right, I mean the Detroit project is looking at three plays. It's a psych- three play cycle that looks at three eras in Detroit's changing landscape and history. The first being, in chronologically, being Paradise Blue, which is set in 1949 during the jazz era of Detroit where a black business was thriving in a a particular community called Paradise Valley and uh, what happens in that year when a new mayor runs a racist campaign to get rid of the black community in the city and how that community eventually gets bulldozed by his urban renewal plans. The second play, Detroit 67, is about the year of what Detroit calls the rebellion, the Great Rebellion which other cities or people might call the riots, the Detroit riots. What was important about this year was that most people call it, I think outside of understanding the cultural context of it, might call it a race riot, but Detroit doesn't call it a race riot at all. And in fact, race was not, it was a riot abound authority. And so this is about a brother and a sister who kind of find themselves fighting over the different ideas of what they want to do with their parents' home and with their business, with the business that they inherit, and sort of how they end up getting caught. And that business is caught in the middle of the 1967 rebellion. And then my third play is a Skeleton Crew which looks at the year that Detroit was hit with a major foreclosure crisis and also the year that the auto industry threatened to collapse and what happens at a small exporting factory when um, workers learn that their plant is going to be closing and how it affects basically a family of workers at a plant.
0: Well, you know, each of these plays for me are very pungent snapshots of the time with very vivid and authentic characters. Two of the plays chronologically before you were even born, um, did growing up in Detroit, did you know people who had experienced those things? Is that where you got your inspirations for some of these characters?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, well, for Detroit 67, I mean, that's my parents' era of growing up in Detroit and being young in their 20s, you know, or 1920, you know. And so they have vivid memories. And so my parents' generation, so my aunts, my uncles, many people in my family were part of that. I think with uh, Paradise Blue, that was my grandmother's generation. But I actually learned about Paradise Valley, that area, From a group of Detroit writers, you know, Detroit poets in the late 90s and early 2000s. I used to be on the Detroit poetry scene, the spoken word community. And I actually learned about Paradise Valley and the bulldozing of a community called Black Bottom Detroit from the other Detroit writers my other peers. So I always credit them with teaching me about my history. But yeah, so those things for me are sort of growing up in Detroit, not only from my elders, but also from my peers has shaped my Detroit education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And the follow-up to that, you, you clearly have a very deep affinity for your characters as well. And particularly for their language, they all have a strong, strong feeling of authenticity as if you know these people extremely well. Are any of the characters based on people that you know in particular, or mm. all yeah. of them? <laughs> mm.
2: They're all based on people that I know. I mean, there are some plays, particularly like in Detroit '67 or in Skeleton Crew, aunts and family members can like point to themselves. They can point mm-hmm. to each other and go, that's that auntie, or that's, you know, that's <laughs> you. You know, and I will deny it to the end of the days. But <laughs> but they they see themselves for sure. And um, you know, it's uncles, it's my father, it's his generation and his friends. It's just elders and contemporaries that I know very well. I mean, these are the people that I grew up with. I have about 300 family members in Detroit wow. and in f- fact when my Detroit plays are produced in my city my family buys a house every to every ah, production. wonderful yeah
1: um, that's
0: fantastic what I particularly like about your plays is that you set up situations that are seem to be conflicts of people who are at loggerheads and there seems to be no easy resolution And somehow each play finds its way to a resolution and often, you know, I think with all three in one way or another, devastating results for at least one of the characters. Do you feel like the pain of dealing both culturally in all of these areas and just the characters with each other is just endemic to the voice of Detroit?
2: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think it's, you know, I call it the poetry of our everydayness, but I listen to who we are and the amazing ways that we engage with each other. And I just, there's poetry in everyone's, I think, natural dialogue and also just how we, what we, the colloquialisms that are regional that we all grow up on, you know, but I also think that there's an element I mean, just to speak to the idea that they all end in devastation in some kind of way, you know, I think that every, unfortunately or whatever it is, there's a truth to the sacrifice that someone has to make in order for social progress and whether they make it intentionally or unintentionally. And in all three plays, there's an intentional or an unintentional sacrifice that has to happen in order for everyone else in the world to move forward. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that's sort of a, maybe that's my own morbid mind about how things work. But I also, it's also because I recognize the sacrifices that were made for me to be and do the things that I do. Someone sacrificed. For me to be here, for me to tell stories the way that I'm doing it with the audacity that I do it with. Someone definitely did something and suffered things as artists, as beings, as not just Detroiters, but as women artists, as black artists. There were several voices that got muted before mine got uh, heard.
0: Well, and to that, I do want to point out to our listeners that these plays ultimately are not downers, despite the fact there is a sacrifice and, in two of the plays, a loss of life, that there is a note of hope that the characters who are left at the end have. In um, yeah, the first play, you know, your lovely character Pumpkin is finding the voice of a poet, and yeah. you get the feeling that she's going to go on and that's going to bloom, and that's mm-hmm. quite wonderful. And Mm -hmm. in the second play, the brother and sister have each other, and there's something very strong there. And -hmm. the people who remain at the factory in the third one, they're moving forward. They're going to do their best to hold on to what they've got. So Mm -hmm. I think you would walk out of the theater not feeling so much as, well, off we go. We survive.
2: Off we go. I mean, I think that that's my attitude on life in general. So I I don't believe in ending stories with hopelessness. It's just not what I want to offer to the world. But I don't want to also end stories with, I don't know, lack of realness, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. our realness is not that we don't suffer, not that we don't experience pain, but that we do know how to carry on through that pain, that we do know how to laugh through the pain (laughs) Um, there's great humor in my work because I I just I think we're hilarious (laughs) you know um I think you know I think laughing at my own pain has caused me to really get through it and I can find the worst things as I think we all can especially within your own family we can find some of the worst things funny you know and I think that that's the case with my character so there's a willingness to keep going on and a willingness to go on together that we sort of There's a sense of social dependency that we have on each other as in humanity that we need each other to, you know, build the world that we're looking to have in the future. We kind of need each other to move forward. And that's, I think, the message of all of my stories.
1: Yeah, agreed 100%. I mean, there's a resiliency that's uplifting, you know, regardless of the some of the circumstances that end up being, you know, a little bit tough. Now, you wrote Detroit 67 a couple of years before the other two plays of the trilogy, even though it's the second work in the trilogy. Did you set out to write a trilogy, or was that an idea that evolved from the work?
2: So, I actually wrote Detroit 67 and Paradise Blue around the same time. Hmm. I wrote them sort of concurrently, actually, but I, Detroit 7 was just the one that I maybe tackled first. I actually did know that I was going to write a three-play cycle from the beginning. Mm. I got the idea in my head that, oh, I was reading August Wilson's 10-play cycle. Mm. Well, I was actually doing a study of Pearl Clegg's work at a theater in New York called Shooting Star Theater. And I was doing that as an actress. And after reading like a lot of Pearl Clegg, who was one of my favorite writers um, and whose shoulders I stand on as a writer. Uh, she's a Detroit writer. Well, she's from Detroit from a legendary activist family in Detroit. And she's an essayist, a novelist, you know, a playwright whose work I've read many times. And when, after doing a study of her work, I thought, oh, this is cool to read an artist work back to back like this, you know, you like to get a sense of someone's body of work and not just one thing. It just, it was illuminating to me about that writer, but also about like what a voice of an artist is. So then I wanted to do it again. Mm -hmm. And I thought, let me do it with August Wilson's work. And I got to about seven or eight before I, (laughs) before I got distracted of the 10. But I realized when reading August's work, wow, like just the way that he captured the pathology of speech of the people of Pittsburgh, the way that he was sort of immortalizing them and his stories. That's what I wanted to do for Detroit.
0: Well, I don't know of too many other Detroit centered playwrights who are out there making those voices heard. So you seem to be the one.
2: Well, you know, I'm never one by myself. I'll, there are a few others, <laughs> other writers from Detroit. I, Ron Milner is, a, is one of the most known playwrights from Detroit before mm. I came along. Mm-hmm. And I have a contemporary, his name is Idris Goodwin. He's a Detroit writer who's telling stories, not necessarily centered about Detroit, but I always like to illuminate. Detroit stories are gonna make their way even if they're in Chicago. <laughs> you know, right. but if, it's a D- <laughs> if it's a Detroit writer writing it, there's Detroit in it, I promise you that. And Idris is one of those writers. So I just wanna use a moment to just kind of give him some spotlight.
0: That's very nice. We also want to address the idea of music in your plays, mm-hmm. which ro- looms rather large. Certainly in the first play you have a central character who's a horn player who's Mm -hmm. looking for a sublime tune to sort of get rid of the demons. You know, in each of the plays we'll change over from a record player to a tape system in the second, which Mm -hmm. covers around the play. And uh, in the last, different kinds of music. You have surreal machinery sounds that kind of create a music. There's a boombox that shows up. And one character who likes simply the music of hearing a microwave oven and a refrigerator hum in the break room, Mm -hmm. different music for different people. How did music become so important to you?
2: You know, I grew up dancing. My aunt has a dance company or ran one in Detroit for many years. Her name is Carol Moriso. She's a visual artist, but she also was a had a dance company. And so in her company, I grew up listening to classical music, to jazz, to R&B, to hip hop, to just a, a plethora of different sounds. And I think it's she gave me my like eclectic ear for music. I'm also married to a musician. My husband, Jimmy Keys, goes by the name Jay Keys as a hip hop artist. He's a lover of music music. music, not just hip hop music. He produces music for other people. And, um, you know, so my whole marriage is based on music. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just a part of who I am. And I think that, that I hear it. My work, I hear musicality, even when there is no music in my work, I still hear music when I'm writing or find a soundtrack to write to. Some people I know can't write when there's music on, but I almost can't write if there's not music on. Like I can, but I just prefer music.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I guess that leads us naturally to Ain't Too Proud, the musical about the temptations for which you wrote the book. And perhaps a wonderful coincidence that the song Ain't Too Proud to Beg is the first thing you hear in the play, Detroit 67.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Funny enough, my producer, so Michael Friedman, the late, great Michael Friedman, who's a wonderful composer, when he was in conversation with the producers of Ain't Too Proud, they were looking for a writer to tell the story about the temptations. And he told them, you know, you if you're doing a story about Detroit, you've got to get Dominique Mariso. Mm-hmm. And so they read my work um, by his, you know, advice. And they always say when they opened up Detroit 67 and saw Ain't Too Proud to beg by the temptations, they And it was like fate. So that's our lady
0: right there. That's the one.
2: I'm the girl. So (laughs) (laughs) really happy I wrote that play.
0: Absolutely.
1: How was that transition from writing a play to writing a musical libretto?
2: It wasn't as daunting as I thought it would be because I always wanted to write a musical. I just didn't know the rules. But when I was working with Des enough, you know, and he and I, we were talking just through the things that we wanted or when we would go through the songs of the temptations, I just could hear how they would work. I grew up, I mean, I wasn't complete. When I said I didn't know how it worked, I didn't know the rules. I didn't know them as a writer. You know, I had been in musicals in high school. I grew up in musicals and seeing musicals, Mm -hmm. but I just didn't know how it would have to change my headspace as an artist. And it didn't dramatically change it. But I will say that one thing I do realize is because I'm a very dense writer. And with musicals, you know, the lyrics have to be the dense thing. That has to be your monologue, you know? And so just finding a way to be a co-writer with the music, that was my journey and lesson in writing a musical. But it felt natural. Like I naturally felt like, oh, I need to pull back the language here. Because when they sing... You know, I wish it would rain. I really don't need to say much. You know, I don't want to take away what the song is, the lyrics of the song or the emotionality that the song is going to carry. I don't want to um, oversell this. So let's just be really scarce here. And that's what, that's my biggest lesson in writing a musical was oh, I have to find a way to be a more scarce writer.
0: Well, I think with a musical book, brevity is the soul of of mm-hmm. getting to the next song. How do we get there? Mm-hmm. And I saw the show out here uh, in Los Angeles on its way to New York. It's quite a dazzling piece. Mm-hmm. And with upwards of 30 songs or something like that, it's just a, right. an <laughs> avalanche of music. Did you choose those songs or were they chosen for you or you collaborate with someone on how you're going to structure it?
2: We had a list of approved songs from their catalog. And mm-hmm. through that list, Des Mackenough and myself just went through it, and listened to the music. I talked about why I felt like, you know, there were some songs that Des didn't want that I thought, well, no, we have to. This one, I think this is a good one for story. But most of it, we were on the same page with, you know. Obviously, they're hits. I mean, you're not going to do it if you can't do My Girl, so forget about it, you, you know. Right. You're not going to do 80 pounds bag. Like, we'll get killed. I mean, like, you not 1,500 only... people
0: in the audience waiting, waiting for that song, and it never shows up. You're in trouble.
2: I don't mean critically killed, although that, too. I just mean, like, murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Literally <laughs> um, murdered. Literally murdered. People <laughs> waiting for you in the
0: parking lot afterwards.
2: Absolutely. Or the subway or whatever you got. And so just doing those things were natural, but I think it was figuring out some of the more obscure songs that was more fun challenge for me or figuring out a new way to use their songs. You know, I said, well, this is about all these songs that are about a man and a woman or, you know, that's such a limiting way to look at, listen to their music. And their music is so global that obviously people that are hearing their music represent all kinds kind of identities and point of views. So let's try to, access those different points in the music to those different people and so a song that is about a man and a woman changes to being about a group of men singing to each other about their own brotherhood and friendship or to men singing to their nation about how they feel about their placement or displacement in their own nation you know so these songs they take on new meaning for me and that was a blast to do that with their songs that I'm so familiar with
1: so the show opens it does incredibly well and you get the call that you are nominated for a Tony award for a <laughs> fest uh, librettist and how did talk to me about that experience what was that whole process like what did you feel
2: Well funny story so I'm a little different when it comes to awards mm-hmm. and things like that not that I don't appreciate all of the awards that I've both received and been nominated for. I find that they have some value in mm. helping to. They've definitely been significant, in, in, I think moving my career forward. At the same time, I'm sort of known and uh, because of Facebook posts and the like. I'm I'm known for not putting all of my value and time into awards and encouraging others not to do the same, which has turned into people going, so I know you hate awards. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That's a leap. (laughs) Slow down. uh, Slow down. So what ended up happening was I wasn't, I was trying to not, to really unplug around that Tony announcement. And, but what happened was a friend of mine calls me the day before the actual Tony awards nominations came out. So what she had read, she calls me and tells me, you know, we didn't really get that many nominations. We got like three, you know. And I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> and when she told me about who did not get nominated on my team, I got very upset—not for myself, but frankly for like Derek Baskin and mm-hmm. this thing that she had read. Derek didn't have an award. I don't think—I uh, don't think Jeremy had a nomination. I mean, it's like people mm-hmm. that I just thought were well, like, "This is ridiculous," you know. I just felt like okay, and I had to work through how I felt about that. And I was more upset, honestly, for the actors that I thought deserved an award than for myself because I sort of don't, I didn't expect anything really. I didn't feel right. like I, I, didn't, I had no expectation. And so then finally, when she and I realized sort of later on that day after I came down from an accepted that whatever, three, we got three nominations, who knows what happened. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Right. And then later on, we realized that she had been reading some kind of prediction, <laughs> you know. It wasn't even the actual Tony, data. No, it was like Tony, a Tony prediction in the in some trade paper, and I had to call her back. Like, uh, do you realize that this wasn't real? I was like, damn it, I'm gonna have to do this whole thing tomorrow. So by the next day, you know, by the time the actual nominations came out, I completely unplugged. I was like, I'm not doing this again. You know? I'm already, I mean, the, it's either going to be way worse or, you know, much better, <laughs> so forget it, you know, and so when my assistant at the time, my mentee was at home with me, mm-hmm. I woke up and I was more worried about everybody else, and I was more worried about, like, you know, things around the house, and she just kept looking at me like, are you going to ask, <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, well... I guess you're gonna wanna tell me, so just tell me, you know. <laughs> and so she tells me that we got twelve and that I've been nominated and and she laughs because I go, But what about Derek? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to piss me off again if that if somehow I have to relive Derek not getting nominated. So I was really uh, excited to, yeah. to know that we got all the team got at least that acknowledgement. I mean, it didn't pan out that way at the awards, but to get their acknowledgement that the work that they did was worth their nomination. I, I was very happy about that.
1: I I think that's probably a very healthy way of looking at it, that they're sort of, you know, commercially, they're obviously helpful, but you don't attach any sort of personal worth in terms of your success, you know, and talent to them. I think that's probably, you know, healthy for aspiring writers to hear, too, you know, that the awards are just icing. It's It's nice
0: to get a pat on the back, but you don't rely on that for your sense of what your work is.
2: Yeah. Or you'll just go insane. I mean, yeah, I'm not a hero, but it's what I work on for myself and it doesn't give everybody the answer they want all the time. Like, hi, how do you feel about a Tony? I'm like, ah, I feel good. You know, it's for cool, I guess, you know, it's a nice thing to have on your, your list, but I just, it can't be the thing that you you live and die by. Right.
1: Do you feel that, you know, circling back to sort of Detroit, do you feel like Detroit is always going to have, is going to be a part of the stories you write?
2: (laughs) You know what? Yes. Even if they're not about Detroit. Mm. My play pipeline, for instance, is not Mm. about Detroit. I mean, it's not really it doesn't name a city because I feel like it speaks to like a public education system across this country. But when I'm in Cleveland, I say wherever is being done, it is that city story. This Mm. is about education in Cleveland. It was originally written for Steppenwolf. So it was about for Chicago. Chicago,
0: sure, yeah.
2: But some of the incidents in the play are inspired by things that happened in Detroit. So I think Detroit will always be, just because that's part of my DNA, it's going to always show up in other stories. Just like I think at this point, Brooklyn and New York will show up in stories for me that aren't necessarily about New York. Because I lived there for, uh, you know, 16, 17 years of my life. That's as long as I actually lived in Detroit, you know, so mm. before I went to college. So both of those cities now are embedded in my soul somewhere. And I, that's just who I am. Yeah.
0: And we're both out here in Los Angeles. I've been kind of nosing around to see if there'd be any productions of your plays <laughs> around and I haven't found anything recently. Is there the, anything Odyssey, on
1: the, uh, the Odyssey Theater did Sunset Baby that Jeff Hayden directed a couple years back? Which he was a few years back, yeah. too, the, the late great, yeah. perfect, which was fantastic.
2: Oh, yeah. Awesome. I, we did the Geffen did Skeleton Crew uh, right. in twenty seventeen. Right, and that was the production that I was able to see, and it was amazing. Yeah, I actually really loved it. I loved. Caroline Clay, my whole cast, people that I've worked with for years, like Kelly McCreary, Mm -hmm. uh, Amari Cheatham, who are some of my favorite actors, and D.B. Woodside. They were the cast, and they were fantastic. And uh, Mm -hmm. Patricia McGregor directed that. And so, yeah, that was really, I mean, that was for me the first play in L.A. where I could really, I felt like that was my premiere sort of in L.A. because it was my first time actually being able to be around the production. And consider myself a resident of the city at the time that I'm having a play there. So that was kind of special.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that was a fantastic production. To be and to be. speaking
0: of Los Angeles, you've dipped your toe into television on the staff of Shameless. That's right. That show. <laughs> now, it does this feel, you know, that's quite a different discipline than playwriting, obviously. Is this the mm-hmm. direction you feel you're going, or do you keep one foot firmly planted in the world of theater?
2: Well, it's funny because you said I have a toe, but I think I'm getting like a foot in the TV world, but but I'm always going to have an elbow and an arm or a leg or something in theater. Uh, It just, there's no way I can do one without the other. There are writers that I know sort of jump ship and are exhausted by one of those mediums, but... I'm just, I sort of need both. I need a lot of balance in my life, just like the world of screenplays. You know, I also write for film Mm -hmm. and um, it's just for me, I'm a storyteller. I'll always be a storyteller. So however the story comes is the way that it needs to get told. If it comes in the form of a play, then that's what it was meant to be. And it could also be a television show or a film, but I'm going to serve it in the way that I feel like it needs, that it comes to me and different stories come in different ways so but theater for me has to always be a part of it because it's the only place honestly i don't know why anybody would give it up as a writer it's the only place you get any respect as a writer i mean you know (laughs) you don't own any of this stuff anywhere else and it's the only place where you really get your voice your voice is the voice that matters Mm. sometimes television will say that if you're developing your own show um I have yet to find that out. I'm, 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 I'm not feeling that way yet, but we'll see. Um, but I definitely think theater is a the place. I mean, there's also, you know, you get a lot of pressure, some people from theaters and producers and things like that. And I think the more commercial theater goes, the more theater feels like TV, frankly. Mm-hmm. But there is always that part of theater that just, it still feels purely and unequivocally yours. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why anybody would give that one up.
0: What, well that's one, a, a lovely note to end on. Thank yeah. you so much.
1: One Thank last you. question. Well, I've got one last question for you here in that you know we have a lot of both Mark and I are teachers and professors and directors and we work with a lot of young writers who struggle to figure out how to get their voice on the page. Is there any quick advice that you can give to young storytellers who are struggling with how they get what's in their head onto a piece of paper?
2: Okay. So for that, because that to me is different than what do you do once you have it on the paper, right? But just to get it out and get it onto the paper, you know, there's a permission. That one is a little simpler, but probably the hardest thing, which is just the access of giving yourself permission. It's a hard thing to do. You know, we're taught many reasons why we're what we have to say isn't valuable or why what we say should be guarded in order to protect ourselves and our vulnerability but i can say this i remember when i was talking to an actor one time at spelman he came to me and he said you know he's working on my plays and he you know he's been told that he you know one of the things he's working on as an actor is being more vulnerable because he's told that he sort of has a wall up and i told him i said well that's amazing because well, the thing is, when I wrote this, I let my wall down. I'm very vulnerable. This is scary as hell. And I bled onto that page. I'm, I'm crying. I'm, this is very fragile for me. And I, I'm very exposed. And so if I'm doing all that and then you're not doing it, that's not really fair. You know, I did that so that you could do it too. So I think with writers, I would say you have to give yourself permission to be open and vulnerable and um, use the work to be, to free you. It's a liberator when you do that. And then if you can do that for yourself, it will do it for other people. Wow. What beautiful advice and what a terrific way to end a
1: fantastic interview Thank you so much for your time. The unbelievably talented and gracious Dominique Mauricio, thank you.
0: Continue. Good luck and keep your voice coming. We need it.
2: Thank you so much for having me, guys. You bet.
1: This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with
0: theater artists of note. That's Mark Kaufman over there. And that's Dan Fishback over there. Please join us again next month when we have another interview with a wonderful theater personality. Until then, cheers. Half Hour to Curtain is produced by the Los
1: Angeles Musical Theater Studio. Music by Anthony Luca. For more information about our podcast, visit www.halfhourtocurtain.com. For more information about the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio, visit www.lamts.com.